Welcome to Downtown the Podcast, episode number 42. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here. Broadcasting from the Zone Radio Studios on Broadway in Bangor, where our show originates every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We're brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And a couple of very interesting conversations this week on the program. We'll talk about love, romance, and the state of our union. We'll get to the love stuff later on, but let's get things underway by welcoming in a historian, professor of history at Princeton University. He's the author of a number of books. His latest, Fault Lines, talks about the origins of our divided United States of America and maybe some solutions to find our way out of this as well. We had a wonderful time talking with Kevin M. Cruz here on Downtown. I often ask, we often ask, America asks, how did we get here? And uh, in your wonderful book, you point out that this is a journey that began uh, several decades ago to get to the point we're at today. That's right, yeah. And so this is a book that I co-wrote with Julian Zelizer, who's another professor at Princeton University in the Department of History. Uh, And we looked back to try to figure out where uh, our our current uh, climate of division comes from. And uh, it's easy to, you know, we could roll back as historians do back uh, as far as we want to go. But but we really see a critical moment here uh, in the 70s. And that's where we start our story. And there are several different lines that uh, we we hit that are divided uh, economically, racially, politically, and, and also a sexual divide. That's right. Yeah, those are the big four ones that we that we trace, and uh, and we move from the 1970s up to uh, to the present day, and, and really see the way in which uh, America has come apart uh, along those big lines of division. One of the things that I think is very interesting, and you've talked about this in your earlier book, uh, we often look at the role that religion has played, and as you've pointed out earlier, um, this this idea of a Christian America that in many ways uh, started in the 1930s and really found full flower in the 50s uh, was an outgrowth of corporate America and their response to what Roosevelt was doing in the New Deal. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and this is uh, something that I think a lot of Americans take for granted uh, because they hear it so often, this, this suggestion that America is formally and officially a Christian nation. Um, uh, certainly from the founding, uh, America had been a nation largely populated by Christians, uh, but the Founding Fathers made it quite clear uh, that the country that they were forming uh, was not going to be a formal Christian nation. Uh, and this was a departure from the way in which uh, the countries had, had existed in Europe, where you had a formal church. Uh, there was uh, The First Amendment has a no-established religion. It, it provides for free exercise of religion. There's, a, there's a, a clause in the Constitution that was radical at the time, that we wouldn't have any religious tests. Uh, for office holders. Uh, that was something uh, that was remarkably radical uh, when the Constitution was written. Uh, and soon after the Constitution uh, is passed, uh, in one of the first treaties uh, that uh, America signed, the Treaty of Tripoli, a uh, treaty begun by George Washington, signed by John Adams, and uh, ratified by a Senate whose membership uh, was half-filled with signers of the Constitution, uh, that treaty says explicitly the government of the United States is in no sense founded on the Christian faith. Uh, so they were quite clear about this. And what I argue in that in that earlier book, One Nation Under God, is that this idea that the government was formally Christian is something that really uh, takes root uh, starting in the 1930s, but really comes about in the 1950s. And all the things that we would point to now as signs of our government having uh, religious traits, uh, things like uh, under God, in the Pledge of Allegiance, 
uh, or uh, or in God We Trust being the national motto or the national prayer breakfast or all these things that these signs and ceremonies and symbols we have today, they're all really created in the 1950s. These aren't things that come from the, the founding fathers. They come from our grandfathers. Some politicians have been successful at taking advantage of these divides in America. And uh, you point out in the book, Nixon's people uh, talked about what they called the politics of positive polarization. That that seems like an oxymoron. Absolutely. Oh, first of all, it's one of those many alliterative phrases that Pat Buchanan and William Sapphire crafted for the administration. They loved alliteration. What I mean by the politics of positive polarization was that it would be positive for them that if you could find a way to get the country to fight with itself, if you could get turn Americans against one another, as long as your side was about 51% or more, uh, you would come out on top, right? And so you could mobilize your base and get them angry at other people. In this case, they were going to get their base, the silent majority, angry at uh, anti-war radicals, at hippies, at civil rights activists, at minorities. Uh, and if you could channel their rage towards them, uh, they would vote for you, and you would come out on top. One of the ways we got here is because, as you point out, uh, many Americans uh, lost their trust in government institutions. Did that begin with Vietnam? Where do you trace those origins? Yeah, there's, there's a series of events in the in the mid-60s to, to early 70s that really just start to tumble that. Uh, that's one of the reasons we start the story in 1974, because that's when Richard Nixon uh, resigned to the Watergate scandal. And that is uh, is really... Um, one of the big blows to uh, to faith in government. Uh, Nixon, who's been elected, re-elected by a landslide margin in 1972, uh, is driven for office for, for his crimes in 74. His vice president, Spiro Agnew, had to resign for his own crimes in 1973. Uh, other congressmen uh, are revealed to be corrupt at the same time. Wilbur Mills, uh, uh, there's the Abscam scandal in the late late 70s. Vietnam is another huge one. And again, that when that uh, war winds down for America in 1975, and seen as a huge blow uh, to American prestige. And as Americans came to learn uh, that the war had really been um, uh, 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 sold on a lot of false premises, they come to distrust the government there, too. They also distrust uh, larger institutions in the economy or the media. There, there's just a general wave of, um, of lack of faith in American institutions at that period. We're talking with Kevin Cruz here on Downtown. You also point out the role the media has played in many ways uh, that began with CNN, the birth of the 24-hour news cycle, and then uh, narrowcasting of folks who aim their programming at a specific group, not to uh, illuminate their lives, but to tell them that what they, what they believe is absolutely correct. Yeah, that's, that was one of the really fascinating uh, through lines of this, uh, of this book for us, is that we started to, to focus in on the media, and we real, realized that the media was a vital story in this, the way in which the media changes. And so this is the period where you start, where you really do have a kind of monolithic, uh, you know, what we call now the mainstream media, right? You've got basically three big television networks, and you've got a handful of major metropolitan newspapers, and together they basically set the tone for the national conversation. They provide a basic uh, agreed-upon set of facts. Uh, they provide a kind of down-the-middle the interpretation of those. Uh, and and it's, it's kind of a standard starting point uh, for, for the way in which Americans understand their world and consume information and act upon it. That starts to fracture over this period. Uh, and CNN, as you note, is a really important early change in this, where suddenly you have, with the advent of cable TV, you have a variety increasingly of, of different news options. Uh, MTV is the one that, that, that pioneers that term narrow casting, mm. as opposed to broadcasting, where you're trying to bring in 
uh, as many people as possible. You really are uh, trying to slice and dice them, right? And so you zero in on a particular market. And then when it comes to news, what that means is that you're zeroing in on, on oh, we're just going to have a, a conservative news, ch- news channel over here. We'll just have a liberal news channel over here. We'll have this channel there. And you can find your own perspective and get your views basically reflected back to you uh, by cable TV. I thought you uh, you and Julian made a great point when you talk about uh, Donald Trump and his rise, and you say that uh, he is uh, the product of this division, not the producer. Yeah, that's right. I, again, we, we started this book, uh, in fact, most of it was written before Donald Trump was even a candidate. Uh, we had a full draft of this in place uh, by, by 2015. Uh, I remember we had a uh, uh, bracketed off in the last, well, it's going to be the last chapter, I bracketed off 2016 election here. I thought a paragraph or two will wrap this up easily, right? <laughs> yeah, how naive. Uh, and of course, that election turned out to be an incredibly tumultuous one, and so we added a whole new chapter uh, and then an epilogue in the first year and a half of the Trump presidency. Uh, but I, I say that just to explain that, again, this, this book uh, wasn't about you know how we got to Trump. Rather, Trump was really uh, a sign of these developments that we saw all along the way. Political polarization, uh, the, 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 the growing course of, about the, the, the problems of economic inequality and anxiety, uh, the way in which the media landscape was fractured, racial divisions, divisions over gender. Uh, he really played into all of these trends that were already on the way. And, and so we're going to deal with these trends uh, even after his presidency, I think. So how do we begin to go in the other direction and, and build those bridges, as you say, between these uh, often polarized camps in America? Well, I think we're starting to see some some signs of that. Uh, one of the big themes of the book is that uh, you know, if we if we focus on Washington D.C., things can often seem to be you know uh, a paralyzed or, or or one side is dominating the other. If you look at the grassroots, you can see throughout this period different social movements moving up. And in fact, modern conservatism uh, was really one of these social movements uh, that, uh, that that built up in the late '70s and and, and took power. And, and Trump is maybe the the product of that. We're starting to see new changes here, uh, putting new things on the on the national agenda, whether it be the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or, or, or things like that. Uh, and whether we, uh, I don't think we're ever going to entirely get over these divisions, uh, but I think we can maybe look uh, at, at what's led us to this point and try to move in the other direction. And that might mean thinking about uh, how we consume our media, thinking about how we uh, uh, construct our politics, move beyond gerrymandering, to move beyond uh, voter suppression and really uh, kind of realize the full potential of democracy. Uh, to really uh, bring everyone to the table, I think might help uh, paper over some of these problems. What sets Trump apart, as you mentioned in the book, is not necessarily his politics. Many of the things he did early in his presidency, uh, any Republican likely would have done in that situation. It's his demeanor. It's the way he's comported himself in the office. But but people seem to like that. So I wonder, when, when he disappears from the scene, I always think back to the only thing I learned about science, nature abhors a vacuum. Will there be somebody who will step into that role and, and replace him? I, I'm sure there will be, and, and we saw this in the 2018 midterms. There were a lot of candidates who tried to replicate uh, the, the, the kind of the Trump appeal. Uh, a lot of them failed, though. Uh, I'm not sure it's a model that can really be be replicated. Uh, in fact, what we might see, uh, you know, I, I could see a successful uh, candidate uh, for, for 2020 uh, running on a basically, you know, a promise that, hey, you're not going to think about me all the time. I'm not going to be in your face with tweets, and, you know, I'm not going to dominate the national discussion. You'll forget who's president for days at a time. I think that could actually be a winning message. 
That sounds so refreshing the way you say that, like that could actually be America again. I will say this, Kevin, I love following you on Twitter. If you just got paid by the number of times you've had to correct Dinesh D'Souza, you could retire now. Oh, man, that'd be nice. If you could arrange that, I would love that. <laughs> We're working on that, definitely. Uh, listen, we have this, uh, we consider it our faculty here at our show, and, and they're, they're history folks that we call on on a regular basis. Uh, people like Joanne Freeman uh, at Yale, Bill Brands down in Texas, uh, Michael Powell with The Times, Ken Burns, Doris Kearns Goodwin. We'd, we'd love to have you uh, be part of that group and come back and visit us again down the road. It's been great talking with you. Hey, it's been great talking to you. I'd be honored to come back. Historian and author Kevin Cruz here on Downtown. His latest book is Fault Lines. When we come back, we'll talk love, romance, parenthood, and more with a radio host and podcast host, Dr. Wendy Walsh, here on Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, we're back on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Let's talk a little love and romance a week or so out from Valentine's Day. We had a chance to catch up with Dr. Wendy Walsh. She hosts a show on KFI in Los Angeles. Also has a brand new podcast called Mating Matters. Here's our love and romance and other relationship conversation with Dr. Wendy Walsh on downtown. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, is it Mating Matters or Mating Matters? (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Both. Uh, it's called Mating Matters, and uh, I'm really thrilled to tell you that I'm doing it in partnership with iHeartMedia, so they've got a good promotional arm there. Um, and it's, you know, it combines, information-wise, it combines everything I love to share with people about the science of human mating, either human mating strategies, um, the sociology and mating marketplaces, even the biology of why we do what we do, because I believe that every human behavior, you can literally draw a line and connect it to human mating in some way. And um, the other thing is because, you know, I used to be a TV producer. I was in the TV business for a long time. It's a great creative outlet because podcasts now, the good ones like mine, are really entertaining (laughs) and they have sound effects and they have clips from movies and popular songs and interviews with people bringing the science to life. So it's really great entertainment as well as information. I think that's wonderful because it is science, but so many people want to believe that that it's something different, that there's some sort of magic and, and mysticism there, but ultimately it does right. often come down to the biology. Yeah, they use the word the mystery of love or Cupid's bow. And I'm like, no, no, there's actually a, a biopsychosocial model of love. And within each of those categories, 
I can give you a couple of little bullet points about what love is. I mean, biologically, we know that it evolved in us to um, create a burst of hormones and neurotransmitters to make us not want to leave that person and stay together long enough to create offspring and hopefully get those offspring up and running with the herd. And um, there are some interesting things about our biology. Did you know that people you are most attracted to physically have a different immune system than you do? Because when you mate with somebody, you might take brown eyes from one, long legs from another, curly hair from another, except immune systems. Immune systems actually combine and create a stronger human being. And the way you tell that somebody has a different immune system from yours is through pheromones. So you will say, if you think about the best sex you had in your life, you will look back and go, oh, they smelled so delicious. (laughs) Uh, So that's just a biological, but then there's sociological, right? Mating marketplaces. If people on an unconscious level sense what their mate status is in a marketplace, they sense how many mates in their age group are available. Women have a ticking clock called a fertility window. So that creates pressures on human mating. And then psychologically, you know, we all have an individual attachment style. It's our model for love. And surprisingly to many, when you're in love with somebody, they might not be feeling the same feeling at all because they have their own version of love. When we talk about those mating marketplaces, well, one of them is certainly social media, and that's changed the way uh, people meet, but also the way they present themselves. Of course, it, it gives you the opportunity to create a new persona, but does that affect the uh, level of trust that people can have? I don't know about trust, but one of the, in some ways, it increases trust because having an electronic footprint enables you to do a deep dive into somebody's mm. background before you even meet them. And to me, that's much safer than the old days where you met someone in a dark nightclub and went out with them not knowing anything about them. Um, but I do, one of the episodes on Mating Matters, my podcast, is called Dating Apathy. And I talked to a neuroscientist from the Kinsey Institute and a lot of people who use dating apps to talk about, to learn about how uh, dating apps change our brains. First of all, they create a kind of cognitive overload because they're gamified, right? You're swiping and swiping and swiping, and there's so many choices and so many choices. And, you know, humans have a paradox of choice, meaning the more choice we are presented with, the less likely we are to actually make a choice. So people are getting all these matches, and they don't even have the energy to go out on the dates anymore because that alone, even the texting back and Mm. forth can be satiating. And they can be kind of addictive, too. We're talking with Dr. Wendy Walsh here on Downtown. So much has changed, and in a good way, with the Me Too movement. Does that make communication even more important? Both sides make it clear what their expectations are. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to be clear that the Me Too movement applies to workplace sexual harassment, and it applies to sexual assault. Me Too shouldn't be involved in our romantic relationships. And in fact, I wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe saying that, me too, get out of our love lives. Uh, Meaning that unless there's sexual assault going on in your love lives. But um, I think what you're saying are gender roles, expectations changing within our intimate relationships. Is that the question? I think so, yes. Yeah. And so the answer is yes. You know, I have a college-age daughter. When she brings a bunch of guys home from college, I, because I am a daughter who grew up in the 70s, immediately says to the girls at the table, come on, ladies, clear the table. And they look at me like I'm friggin' an idiot, and they turn to the guys and go, grab your plate, dude. Um, And I realize they don't even clear a man's plate anymore. Um, So I think 
we have more women in the American workforce than men right now. We're not enough in boardrooms, of course, and the pay gap is still there, but we're actually more of us. And more women are graduating college. So we can't do it all, right? So if we're going to see this exodus of, I have been seeing over the last 30 years, an exodus of women outside of the household, we need to see men coming in. And the only way that's going to happen is for women to change their expectations and men to change their expectations. So yeah, it all needs to be talked about. Communication is a thing. You just got to say, here's what, how my parents did it. What does that feel like to you? Well, my parents did it this way. Because we all have this model for gender role expectations based on what we saw in our family of origin. When people get into new relationships, uh, there's a tendency to jump in with both feet. But as those relationships that grow and change, there's a balance you have to find. And you've talked about this on your show. How do you find that balance between autonomy and union? Well, you know, that is the ultimate conflict of every relationship, right? Because when two people come together, trust me, you can get a lot more done using two brains than one. You can make more money, you can raise children, you can live under one roof, you can solve so many problems. But then you become fused if it goes too deep, right? So there are some couples, you know, you, I, I know a couple couples like this. I call them and they're on speakerphone all the time, the two of them. They have a social media page, that's the two of them. They're so fused that nobody can remember whose problem is whose. And that becomes a little bit ingrown. On the other hand, relationships that are too open, that where there's too much independence, there's often a lack of emotional intimacy, which is the glue. And so a good, healthy relationship is constantly negotiating these boundaries. What is the we? What is the I? How can I continue to grow as an individual within the context of maintaining this healthy we? I saw you tweet about this the other day. Can you share with our listeners the trait that makes people feel comfortable around you? Um, it is, believe it or not, being open and smiling. So it's, what's really interesting is, you know, we come into the world with a genetic predisposition to just be who we are. And some people are introverts and they may be the nicest, kindest, sweetest person, but they are biologically wired not to speak first, not to smile first, etc. And these are the people in our culture that we have to give <clears throat> more time to, but we also have to um, understand that they could be really great, loyal friends and lovers. And then there are people like me who are open. I mean, I am such an extrovert that I hear a thought plenty of times outside my lips, not in my brain. <laughs> so I process externally. And um, those people who are positive people and who are open, tend to, other people tend to be drawn towards them. So if you think about it, the best preachers, the best teachers, the best politicians all have this trait because they're trying to win a big popularity contest. I want to shift into another relationship, and that's the parenting relationship. I came to parenting late in life. I've got a five-year-old, and I want wow, to think that <laughs> I want to think getting a late start maybe makes me better prepared. But it's interesting negotiating things along the way. Are parents too involved in their children's lives these days? Well, let me say that as the, the narrow family of origin becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, in other words, just 40 years ago, 
you were born into a tribe of people. You might have lived in a home or on a farm with multi-generations of people living there. You would have a village and community and go to your local public school and have teachers and coaches that you were close to. And so what's happened because modern American capitalism needed mobility and started moving employees around the country at a fast pace, when grandparents started becoming less involved with offspring, when parents stopped having so many siblings, because it used to be older siblings that helped raise the younger ones, the burden got put on parents. And so when you say to me, um, are we investing too much time or too much attention to our kids? Not if both of you are working full-time and there are no siblings and grandmas around and no village. I'd say it's the opposite. Most parents aren't giving enough to their kids because it's hard to do with the time allotted. And is that why I've, I've felt for a while that's why you see uh, I, what I think is the overscheduling of a lot of kids because there's uh, some guilt for not spending enough time, and so you try to replace that with quality events and organize things rather than just uh, being with your children and doing something completely fun, unplanned, and extemporaneous. Well, part of the overscheduling is that parents have to schedule their kids around their working hours, right? They need the child care. Mm. So that's how kids are getting overscheduled. But yes, all these running around to shows and Disneyland and whatever, you know, There's a great psychiatrist in Canada who wrote a beautiful book called The Last Child in the Woods, and he identified something he calls nature deficit disorder. And he's seeing this increasing amount of ADHD, ADD, anxiety, and depression in children that are raised in cement and wood and pavement and are not out near nature. You know, they've done research on people who only they sent them out camping for a week, and found that their uh, white blood cell count went up, their immune systems worked better, and that that effect lasted a month. We know our mental health does better when we are in nature. We spend hundreds of thousands of years living in trees. This is our natural state of being. And so children, when the brain is developing, need this more than anybody. And so it's one thing to rush them around to parks to play soccer. It's another thing to just go on a hike with them or go camping with them. Every kid wants to sleep outdoors. They want to put the tent in the yard. Let them do that. That's why. Dr. Wendy Walsh proving that no, love does not stink. Always. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, Downtown the Podcast. Thanks to Dr. Wendy, Kevin M. Cruz of Princeton University, the author of a terrific book, Fault Lines, and much more. And thanks to you for joining us. Catch us next time. Tell your friends, subscribe, Spread the word about Downtown the Podcast, and we'll see you next time right here.